Open our Bibles, if you would, please, to Ephesians chapter 6. And it's been about five weeks since we've studied in the book of Ephesians, and I surely hope that you haven't forgot our subject. By now, it should be etched into your minds that we're talking about uh, Christian warfare. And Paul concludes this great book of Ephesians here in chapter 6 by talking about the spiritual conflict that engages all of us as Christians. And this is a battle that the Bible uh, teaches that we have to be prepared to fight because if we're not ready for this, we will be quickly overwhelmed by the enemy and, of course, we'll become ineffective in our Christian's life, in our Christian lives. And, in fact, the truth of the matter is there are many Christians that are not ready for this fight. Uh, they haven't even actually got into the battle. And there are many Christians that sort of live their lives out on the fringes and out on the boundary lines. It's sort of like looking over into the land of Canaan to see all the good things are there, but they end up being miserable and frustrated because they're not careful to guard their Christian lives and, and just to protect themselves against the wiles of the devil. And so this is why Paul talks to us about putting on the Christian armor. Now, it's very easy, I think, for us to... Uh, refer back to our study of Joshua on Sunday nights and think about Joshua as he went into the promised land and make that a comparison to the victory that we need over sin and over Satan. Because Joshua had to be prepared to fight a battle. He was fighting against physical forces. He used physical uh, pieces of armor to fight in order that he might win a physical piece of land for the people of God. And just as Joshua fought to uh, subdue the land of Canaan. So we in our Christian lives, we fight spiritual warfare, we use spiritual armaments, and we do that that we might be able to enjoy spiritual benefits of the Christian life. Well, Joshua couldn't fight without being prepared. He had to have proper armaments, and neither can we fight as Christian people without proper preparation, without understanding the pieces of armor that God has given us. Now, this is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 6. Remember the message on Sunday morning? I told you from 1 Corinthians that Paul said that all of these things that happened to the children of Israel, everything written in the Old Testament, he says they're written for examples for us, and they're written for our learning so that we would know what to do in similar circumstances. Now, we've come here finally after many weeks to talk about the spiritual armor, and we're going to talk about each individual piece. Our text verse tonight is verse number 14, but we're going to start reading at verse number 10. So if you'd stand with me, please, as we read the word. We're going to start with verse number 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. 
Heavenly Father, as we come to you tonight, uh, we just pray that you'd help us to better understand what Paul has to say to us in the Scripture tonight. A blessing the message. Draw us close to you through the reading and studying of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Verse number 11 says, Put on the whole armor of God. And in verse number 14, Paul begins to tell us exactly what these pieces of armor, what they consist of. Now, here we have listed for it six different things, six different pieces of armor that Paul says that we are to put on. He talks about the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes of the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. Uh, Several weeks ago in our study, I, I, I mentioned that we may wonder sometimes, where is it Paul got the idea to describe... Christian warfare, to talk about it as a battle and talk about these different pieces of armor. And there are many people who believe that that Paul, even while he was writing the book of Ephesians, that right then he was chained to a Roman soldier. And so he could look over at that soldier and the Holy Spirit began to lead him and he began to think about those pieces of armor that the soldier had. And he may have taken that idea and, and started to compare that to these different things that God says that we have to have as spiritual armor. He may have begun to think about the Christian life as a battle. And as he did, there were probably stories of the Old Testament that came back to his mind. As he thought about uh, perhaps Joshua fighting the battle of Jericho. Or maybe he thought about Gideon When he stood out there and with the people, he shouted, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And then maybe he thought about David, who who was up against a warrior that was twice his size, and how he needed God's help to defeat Goliath. Well, all of those things could have been uh, in in Paul's mind as he began to write about the different pieces of Christian armor. But James Montgomery Boyce has a very interesting comment on this because he doesn't think that it's the Roman soldier at all that caused uh, Paul to think about this or the soldier's not his inspiration. But he seems to think that Paul was such a student of God's Word that the first motivations for writing anything in the Scripture was to go back and to, and to think about what was written in the Old Testament. And so certainly what would have come to his mind are, are some words that we read in the book of Isaiah where it talks about God putting on his own armor. So James Montgomery Boyce says, Paul had filled his mind with doctrines, words, and images of the Old Testament. And he would have known that in Isaiah 59, there is a picture of God putting on his own armor. So perhaps that's what Paul uh, had in mind. Isaiah 59, verse 17 says, For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head, and he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. And voice may be exactly right. That, that might be where Paul got his idea. And after reading that and thinking about it, I'm not so sure that maybe he does have the right idea. But whether he does or not, we certainly do know this, that what Paul says is eminently scripture, and what we scriptural, and what we have here in Ephesians chapter 6 is really just a wonderful allegory on the Christian life. Now this evening, I want to start describing these pieces of armor. And we're going to take one piece at a time, and I want to show you how each part is essential for practical Christian living. So we're going to take the first of these tonight, and we're looking at the first part of verse number 14. It says, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. Now we need to understand, first of all, that Paul is making a 
a, a comparison to physical armaments. And so he says here, having your loins girt about. Well, the loins, as you should know, or I think you probably do know, are the waist area. And if we put this into our modern terminology, we would say something like having put a belt around your waist. Unfortunately, the translation that we have here is just a little bit awkward because the way that it reads in the King James Version is that it appears that this is something that is done for you. But actually, the meaning here is this is something that you must do. You must put on the belt. And so it would be stand having put on the belt of truth. And that's exactly what God expects. You are involved in this. This is effort that has to be uh, put on by the Christian. The Christian has to actually do this. Now, we're not talking about something like passive regeneration. In regeneration, there's nothing at all that you can do. I mean, God has to do that for you. But here he's actually talking about active sanctification. This is something that God enables you to do, but you're the one that has to work at this. You have to do it. You have to proceed, and you have to be involved in the exercise. So Paul says, you do it. Now, in Paul's day, of course, the men wore loose robes and flowing gown-type type uh, garments. They didn't have Levi's like we have today or leg pants like we have. And so they wore these gowns and they were very loose fitting. And so if a man wanted to move quickly, if he had to get moving in a hurry, what he would have to do, he would draw up those garments around his waist and he would tie them off so he wouldn't be encumbered. They wouldn't get into his way. And so he would tie them up with something that was called a girdle. It's not a Playtex living girdle. But this is like a rope that he would tie around his waist. And that would hold the garments up so he could run, so he'd keep those things out of the way of the rest of his his, uh, uh, pieces of warfare. Now, for a soldier, uh, that would be a little bit different because he would wear a belt much more uh, similar to what we wear today, like a leather belt that we would wear. But he would bind up his garments, and he would keep those garments from getting in the way. So he could easily get to his sword, he could easily hoist up the shield... And so Paul says that's what a Christian has to do. He must prepare himself to go into battle. He must gird himself with something. And the thing that Paul says that a Christian must gird himself with is truth. Now the question is, what does he mean by truth? What kind of truth? Well, David says in Psalm 51 verse 6, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. In that verse of Psalm 51, truth refers to the character of a Christian. It has to do with with, uh, honesty and sincerity. And it means that you would be the kind of person that when people deal with you, that you always deal honestly, you're always forthright with others. And you might also look at it this way, that God doesn't want you to be outwardly a person who just puts on a face of Christianity, but God wants you to be a person who inwardly has actually been changed by the gospel of Christ, and the truth has done something in your heart. Now, all of those things are great. I mean, that's that's exactly what we need. Those are important principles. But I don't think that that's what Paul means when he speaks of truth in this scripture. I believe that Paul is talking about truth in an objective manner. I believe, in other words, that that Paul is talking about the Word of God. 
Now, in, in chapter, or in verse number 17 of this chapter, he talks about the sword of the Spirit, and definitely there, the sword of the Spirit refers to the Word of God. And so we might think, well, well, he couldn't be talking about girding yourself up with truth and using the Word of God in that sense, because he's already going to talk about it in verse 17 when he talks of the sword of the Spirit. But it seems that what Paul is actually doing here, he is speaking about the Word of God, but he's speaking about it as it concerns the whole body of Christian faith. So what does he mean by truth? Well, let's define it here. This first piece of armor is truth, and truth is the entire complement of Christian doctrine. So Paul is saying that if you're going to face the enemy, and if you are to have the ability to defeat him, you have to be aware of the doctrines or the truth of the Christian faith. You have to be well-versed in the doctrines of God's Word. Now that means more than you've just read the Bible, and it means more than you have memorized some memory verses. Those are good things. You ought to do those things. But this means more than that. You need more than that. What this actually means is that you have the Scriptures in your heart and you understand what those Scriptures mean. You're able to use those Scriptures. You know how to apply it. And that is where many Christians are not ready to fight. And that's because there are so many people that haven't been taught good, solid doctrine. They've been taught how to obey rules. They've been taught soul-winning presentation. That's good. But if you ask them things like, well, well, how is it that God actually works in regeneration? Can you explain to me how that takes place? Can you talk to me about uh, justification by faith? And what does it mean to have the imputed righteousness of Christ? Or to sit down with someone and take the Scriptures and be able to explain to them why the Bible so clearly says that a Christian is eternally secure in Christ. And many Christians can't do that. And that's just the beginning of doctrines. We could think about baptism. I mean, could you argue for the Baptist position on baptism? Why don't we baptize infants? Well, where can we go in the Scriptures to prove that we ought not to do that? What if someone comes to you and says, well, I believe in a universal, invisible church doctrine. Can you defend why you believe in local church doctrine and what the Bible has to say about that? Paul says that you need to be prepared for these kinds of things. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 3, verse 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and with fear. Now, every Christian is not ready to do that. But all of us ought to be working our way towards it. I mean, trying to find out about it. That means we have to be students of of the Word of God, and we have to be students of the doctrines of the faith. Now, what does that do for us? I mean, how does that that work out for us uh, regarding the ability to fight warfare? So let's talk about that first. First of all is the capability of Scripture. What does Scripture do for a Christian? Now, I could expand that to a lot of things, as you could well imagine, but I want to just give you two things that are peculiar when you talk about truth as an armament. Now, the first thing that truth will do for a Christian soldier is that truth gives confidence to a Christian. A soldier has to fight with confidence. The soldier goes into battle, and he's disheveled, and he can't reach the sword. He goes, and he's encumbered with his garments. They're getting into his way, and those things are holding him back. He doesn't fight with confidence. So this is why Paul says, gird it up. Get it out of your way. Tighten it up. Tighten your belt so that you are immediately ready to spring into action. And that's what knowledge of doctrine will do for you. It gives you the confidence to face all comers. Now, I know a lot of Christians that 
They don't want to share their faith with people. They do not want to get involved in a Bible discussion because they know sooner or later they're going to run into somebody who knows more than they. And so they're not willing to discuss these things. And so they're afraid. They become shy and they become reclusive. Well, there's nothing that will give you confidence than to understand how the Bible fits together, how these doctrines work together, how you can put them all together to make a persuasive argument about Scripture. Jude said, It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith. And the reason that Jude wrote that was because right then in the church, there were people that came in, they were bringing in false doctrines, they were bringing in heresies, they were perverting the Word of God. And the only way that those people could be prepared to fight against perverse doctrine was to know the truth of the doctrines of the Word of God. They couldn't defend themselves if they didn't know them. Now, here is the plain truth of the matter. Usually, maybe not usually, but very often... The devil's crowd knows more about what they believe than we know about what we believe. And so we're not able to stand up against the devil. We can't fight against the devil and we can't defend our faith because we just don't know much about it. Now, maybe you're a new Christian. Maybe you're a baby Christian. And that's all right. I mean, it takes time to learn the Word of God. And uh, a soldier, he doesn't go into battle without training. So if you're a new Christian, that's understandable. But what you always ought to be doing, every one of us, is applying ourselves. Don't go week after week and year after year without growing in your faith. Don't go without growing in your knowledge of the Word of God. I think when you come down to the end of the year and you get ready for a new year, maybe you need to ask yourself, am I disappointed with what I know about my faith? And if you are then you haven't spent enough time in God's Word. So there's only one remedy for this. Nobody does it for you. God doesn't do it for you. You have to put in the time to study the Word. You've got to take the time. You've got to go to church. You've got to come and hear the messages. You've got to avail yourself of every opportunity to learn God's Word. Now that's what all of God's people need. We need to have the confidence to preach or to give the Word of God to other people. But there's another thing that truth does for us. Truth confounds the enemy. Now, if you've taken time to study church history, one of the things you know is that the history of the church is filled with conflict. And I don't mean just personal conflict like we're talking tonight. I mean about Christian warfare and the individual personal conflicts that you have. I'm talking about, about extreme doctrinal conflict on all levels. There's a lot of confusion, and that confusion has rocked the church down through the centuries. Before you even get out of the first century, you find the seeds of apostasy and heresy are already being sown in the church. That's why the apostles write about it. Um, The Jerusalem church. I mean, here is a church that in the beginning, they had thousands upon thousands of, of converts to the gospel of Christ. But before we even get to the end of the Old Testament, we find out that the church in Antioch has already begun to eclipse the Jerusalem church. And you know why that is? Because there was heresy in the Jerusalem church. Take a little bit of time, if you want, and and read in Acts chapter 15, 
there was a council that was called together, and they, the apostles were called to this council to debate something. And what they were debating was legalism in the Jerusalem church. There were people in the church who said that Gentiles have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And so the apostles got together, and they began to debate that question. Is that the truth? Later on, Paul wrote the book of Galatians for the very same purpose because the heresy of legalism had begun to infiltrate the Galatian church. Then it went beyond that. There's other things that started after that. Uh, The doctrine of the Trinity was attacked. It had to be defended. The doctrine of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ was attacked. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 15 for this very purpose because those people didn't understand that the resurrection of Christ was not a spiritual resurrection. It was a bodily resurrection. And so Paul had to explain that to him because who knows, those people might have thought that, well, someday we'll be able to find the body of Jesus in a tomb somewhere. But Paul explains, no, it was a bodily resurrection, which means because that happened for Christ, that will happen also to you. So that heresy was in the church. And then there's other things that come along. The, the Christological and the Pauline doctrines uh, of, of grace, those were perverted. And through the centuries and even today, the fight is still here over things like election and, and predestination. Is it God who saves? Is it man who saves? Who really does it? But you know something about it? The truth always prevails. And the truth will confound the enemy. The reasons... Uh, the reason that the Baptists of the past wrote down their great confessions of faith, those things came out of defense of gospel truth, scriptural truth. And so our confessions were written down to define the truth. You can go back to the first London Confession, Baptist Confession of 1644, or go to the uh, second London Confession in 1689, go to the New Hampshire Confession of 1833, or go back a way, way back further than that, go all the way back to the Waldensians who, who had to hide out in the valleys of the Piedmont in the Middle Ages because of persecution, they wrote down what they believed in order to defend the truths of God's Word. And they used that truth to confound their enemies. And that's why we have the truth of all these great confessions. But the problem today is that there's so many Baptists that have, that have disregarded the old confessions of faith, the things that we've always believed. And instead, what we've done is we've reinstituted legalism. If we're going to fight the good fight of faith, we have got to make sure that we have the same old doctrines that Jesus and the apostles had. You know, an amazing thing is that Jesus confounded the Pharisees in the book of John with truth. And do you know what that truth was? The very same truth that I've been teaching you here, right here in Berean Baptist Church. Those very same doctrines are taught in the book of John And they confounded the Pharisees. Now, those same truths have been discarded by Baptist churches. Now there are so many Baptists that really don't even understand what John 3 is all about. Well, what about Jesus talking to Nicodemus? What's the theological argument in John chapter 3? And folks, it is profound, actually. And there are many people today that don't even realize, they don't even know what the real meaning behind Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus was. So the scriptures are eminently capable when they're rightly understood. But if you have a soldier that doesn't know how to use his weapons, then he's going to be ineffective. Now let's go on. Let's talk about another area that concerns the truth. There's the capability of scripture, and then there is the authority of scripture. 
Scripture is useful to a Christian soldier because of its inherent authority. The Scriptures do not receive their authority from an outside source. They are inherently authoritative. And we're going to take it up a little bit later in the next heading. But the truth, or the Word of God, uh, the Scriptures are inspired by God. The Scriptures aren't God, but God is in the Scriptures, and the Scriptures are truth. Now, let's notice some things about this, the authority of Scripture. First of all, truth does not come from intellect. Where do I get my authority? Well, the modern version of truth is that truth comes from reason. We live in an age of enlightenment, so I can find out truth by basing it on modern discoveries. Now, even when it comes to the Bible, there are people who say, well, well, we found out new things about the Bible. We've got a new manuscript. We've got a new way of looking at the Bible. Well, what happens when you base your authority on what man is able to discover? When you base truth on what you can discover by the intellect, you know what happens? Truth changes. What was true 100 years ago is not true today. And what will be true 100 years from now is going to be different from the truth that we, that we believe right now. Now, here's one thing that, that, that I surely know, is that eternity is coming. And there has to be some truth that does not change because my eternal salvation is dependent upon that truth. In the next hundred years, if something is discovered that controverts the truth that I believe today, what happens to my salvation? I can't be saved. Well, here's the wonderful thing about God's Word. God's Word is preserved. God's Word never changes. And so the truth of God's Word is the same from the time it was written, uh, finished up writing now 2,000 years ago. It's the same truth it'll be when we get to heaven. It will not change. It's forever recorded there. So this truth of God's Word cannot change. So I have the right authority in my hands. When I hold up the Bible, I have the right authority. And I can say with assurance that if you will believe that Jesus died, that he was buried, that he rose again, if you believe that, you will be saved. And you will be eternally saved. And nothing is ever going to change that. Truth cannot come from intellect. We have the authority in the Bible. That's our authority. Then the next thing here is truth does not come from emotions. Now, I've already dealt extensively with emotions and feelings in previous sermons, so I'm not taking much time here. But I've talked to many Christians that you can show them the truth straight from the Word of God. You can read the verses, and you can show them what the Bible says, but they back off because it doesn't feel right to them. Now, what they've done is they've they've stopped trying to reason things out. They've already found out that intellect fails them. So the next thing they do is they begin to rely on their emotions. I remember almost five years ago going to a former member's house of our church, sitting down with them in the Bible, showing them the Scriptures, explaining to them why I preach what I preach. We sat down with the Bible. We went over Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. They sat there and looked me in the face and say, that's what the Bible says. We agree, that's what the Bible says. But then after we were finished, when we got down to the end, their comment was, but I just can't believe it. It doesn't feel right. And that's exactly why I say that Paul is talking about objective truth. Whenever a Christian decides to put the the balance of what he believes into the subjective side of things, that's when he gets tangled up. You get tangled up in feelings and emotions and you are going to fall. 
Paul says you have to gird yourself up. You have to understand the authority of Scripture. Never rely upon intellect or upon emotions. Now, there's one other problem when you get your authority mixed up. Some think that the authority comes from institutions. Truth does not come from institutions. There are groups like the Roman Catholics that are mixed up about this, and and they're mixed up. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Is it the church that gives authority to the Scripture, or is it the Scriptures that give authority to the church? And what Roman Catholics have decided to do is to let the horse push the cart. Or if you know the metaphor better this way, they put the cart before the horse. And so they believe that it is the church that gives authority to the Scripture. So they ask, uh, do you read the Bible? And in fact, before, you know, uh, they would tell you couldn't read the Bible. Years ago, the, the uh, Roman Catholic would say, you don't need to read the Bible. And say uh, they forbade people to even own a Bible. Did you know the Roman Catholics vigorously opposed the translation of the Scriptures into the common vernacular, the common language of people? They resisted that. They hated the King James Bible. Now, they don't necessarily forbid people to read it, but they say, you can't understand it. The priest has to explain this to you. The church has to explain it to you. They're the authority. And if what they they say does not agree with the Bible, then the Bible doesn't count. You go by what the church has to say. Now, here's the thing about it. Roman Catholicism does not find the authority for their existence in the Bible. Roman Catholicism... If you study this out and you study their history, it is a combination of paganism and politics mixed into, uh, put into a big mixing bowl of misinterpreted Scripture. There's no foundation for it in Scripture. You know, I mentioned back when Pope John Paul II died that his casket, if you remember, was draped in a flag that represented Mary. The symbolism of Mary. So here's the Pope, and he's buried, embraced with this this symbolism of Mariolatry. Now, that's nothing but idolatrous worship of Mary. I want you to listen to what a Roman Catholic Monsignor wrote about Mary. He said, each time we repeat the prayer, Save us, O Queen, we spontaneously admit the queenship of Mary. Mary is queen of heaven and earth because she is the mother of Jesus, the king of the universe, thus becoming the co-redemptrix of the human race. It is because Mary gave life to the Son, who is king and lord of everything, that she is somehow mysteriously the mother of the Trinity. Mary is still our queen and co-redemptrix of our salvation. It was she, one who was free from guilt and sin, that offered her son on Calvary's cross, sacrificing her maternal love and rights for our eternal salvation. Mary, queen of goodness and mercy, full of love and grace, guides all humanity towards paradise. Sitting beside Christ, who is the ruler of the world, is Mary, whom our Redeemer has entrusted as the official dispenser of grace. The authority that Mary has is based on the power of intercession and the mediatorship because she has access to the heart of Christ the King. She has the key to his heart and distributes all the grace and treasures that are enclosed in them. Now, so much for the Bible, because the only thing that was true in that whole quotation is that Mary was the mother of Jesus. You know, they even have that idea wrong, because if you listen to what I was reading, they relate her motherhood to his kingship. Now, I want you to listen here to the non-biblical errors that are in this one statement. I find nine errors in one paragraph. Mary is the queen of heaven. 
Mary is a co-redeemer with Jesus Christ, which means that Mary also saves us. Mary is the mother of the Trinity, and so thus that means she's also the mother of the Father and of the Holy Spirit. Mary was free from sin. Mary offered Christ on the cross. It wasn't the Father who offered him. It was Mary who offered her son. Mary saves us by giving up her maternal rights. Mary guides all people to heaven. Mary sits beside Christ in heaven. Mary is the official dispenser of grace. There's not one word of any of that in the Bible. But it doesn't matter. Because the Roman Catholic doesn't think the Bible has authority anyway. The church, the institution, that is the authority. And you know what that is? It is anti-Christian and it is blasphemous. And this is exactly why a Christian soldier needs to be sure about his authority. You have to have the authority right. Because if the Bible is not our final, and I'd even like it better to say our only authority, then every Tom, Dick, and Harry that comes along can claim to have authority. So we have to know where our authority comes from. Now, about two months ago, uh, the Grand Poobah of the... uh, Mormon church passed away. You may have seen that in the paper. And you know what he claimed to be? He claimed to be a prophet. He claimed to speak for God. And if what he said disagreed with what the Bible or anybody else says, it doesn't matter because he's the authority. And he claimed to have the same authority that Joseph Smith claimed and that Brigham Young claimed. A soldier of Christ had better have the authority right or he will succumb to the wiles of the devil. Now let me add, Mormons and Roman Catholics, they're not in this army. Now, let's finally, let's talk about this. Number three is the reliability of Scripture. Now, the authority of Scripture is very closely related to that because the Scriptures are reliable because of their authority. Now, two things that we need to talk about here and we'll be through tonight. The first one is, truth is inspired. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.16... All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now, we got the Scripture up there. If you look at that phrase right there, inspiration of God, that's actually one word in the Greek. It's the word theonoustos. Theo means God. Noustos means breed. And so you put that together, it means God breed. And that's how we receive the Scriptures. The Scriptures are the breath of God. Here's what Peter said. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And so that means that God himself, God the Holy Spirit, uh, carried them along. He moved them. He impelled them as they wrote the Scripture. And you'll never find anywhere in the Scriptures... I mean, I would challenge you to find this, that there was ever a time when a prophet or an apostle said, I have thought long and hard about this. I've studied it from every different angle. And finally, I have come to the conclusion. Did you ever read that in the Bible? What do you read there? Thus saith the Lord. The prophet said it 415 times in Scripture. Thus saith the Lord. So the scriptures come from God. They're reliable. They have truth personified as the author. That's Jesus Christ. The scripture says that Jesus is full of grace and truth. Jesus is the manifestation of the Father. And if he is grace and truth, then his words are also truth. And so the Christian soldier must gird himself up with truth. Jesus said to the Father, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is 
truth. Now that's a verse that ought to help us better to understand why our warfare is dependent upon God's word. Truth is the armor. So we can't function. We can't be useful in God's service unless we have the truth. You have to understand it. You need to know the doctrines of God's word. These are the things that are going to help you gird yourself up so you can stand against the wiles of the devil. Now finally, truth is inerrant. Because it comes from God, there can be no mistakes. Truth never misfires. God said through Isaiah, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. God's truth is the only truly reliable, infallible, inerrant entity in this entire world. There's nothing like the Scripture. You know, it's interesting that when Abraham was talking to the rich man in hell, the rich man was afraid that his brothers would come to that awful place. And so he, he begged Abraham to send somebody back from the dead. Send somebody back that they might be able to tell my brothers about this place. Remember what Abraham said? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Listen to how Jesus relates this to us. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. What did Jesus mean when he said, they have Moses and the prophets? Listen to what W.A. Criswell says. Moses and the prophets is the customary way of referring to the Old Testament scriptures. Clearly, Jesus recognized the scriptures as a wholly sufficient guide for anyone legitimately seeking the truth. In reply to the rich man's argument that a resurrection from the dead would be convincing to his brethren, Abraham notes that the problem is attitude, not evidence. If they have not believed the Scriptures, then neither will they believe though one rose from the dead. The Scriptures are the truth. Now notice the last statement on your listening sheet. Now the, 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 the Christian soldier, the Scriptures have exactly what we need because they're totally reliable. So here's your statement. The Scriptures are fully sufficient for all matters of faith and practice. So Paul says, bind yourselves up with the belt of the Bible. We need the whole body of faith. We need the whole body of Christian doctrine. We need the whole body of the Old and New Testament. All of the scriptures put together. We need it all. And we have to be proficient in the word of God. Proficient in truth in order to stand against the wiles of the devil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for the study that we've had of your word. Help us to better understand, Lord, how important it is for us to know your word, for us to get into this and dig out the truth that's there. Help every person here, Lord, to listen to the messages, to, to, to take these words to their heart and begin to understand the truth ever so much better that we would be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Bless in this invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.